Our scripture today is from Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to read 12 through 21. Philippians 1, 12 through 21. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, as we open your word together this morning, we pray that you would speak. God, that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, that you would sharpen us. God, that you would give each person here and each person worshiping with us online exactly what we need through your spirit in this moment from your word. We trust in you to do that, Lord Jesus, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I am not what you would call a happy person. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not unhappy, and I'm, I'm certainly not miserable, but like anybody who knows me would be like, hey, there's a happy guy. Like nobody, nobody's ever said that about me. That's, o- that's okay. I'm, I'm, I know I'm, I'm bent a little bit more in the melancholy direction. I, I've dealt with, you know, mild depression most of my life, and it's, that's just, that's, that's okay. It's part of me. I, I'm not exactly happy, and yet... I think I'm a joyful person. Like, can you, can you be joyful even if you're not particularly happy? I mean, joy is kind of a weird concept, isn't it? Uh, we, all, we all want it, no exception, right? We all want it, and frankly, we all want more of it. And I think, like, deep down, we know that it's more than just warm feelings. We, we know that it's, it's more than just comfort or an easy life. We know that because all of us know people who have none of those things, who still have great joy. So how do we get it? What's their secret, right? Well, last, last week we started a new series. We're calling it Return to Joy because we don't want to just return to normal, whatever that even means, right? We want to return to joy. And so we're going to be studying Philippians together, uh, this little tiny book in the New Testament. We're going to take the next couple months or so uh, to go through this. And it's often considered one of the most joy-filled books in the Bible. And it's a, it's a personal favorite of mine, and so much so that I actually, I actually memorized the, the whole book back in college. Don't quiz me. Uh, and that's not me bragging. That's just me showing like, how desperate I am for joy. I want joy, and I'm guessing you do as well. If you're here with us last week or, or you joined us online, uh, Reed introduced a, a sort of surprising definition of joy. 
Maybe, maybe caught some of you off guard, but I, I, think he's, I think he's right. He quoted a psychologist, Dr. Alan Shore. He's an expert in the field of neuroscience and attachment, and he's, he's, a, he's a joy expert. I don't, I don't know his faith commitment, but his definition of joy aligns with what we see in Philippians and really even aligns with what we see in all of Scripture. Dr. Shore defines joy like this. Joy is someone who is glad to be with me. It's when someone is glad to be with you and you're glad to be with them that, that it's, it's you enjoying someone who is enjoying you. Like that is the essence of joy, that joy is always relational. And again, even though it sounds like a weird definition, like I think we, like, we know that intuitively, at least to some extent. We, we know like when okay, something good happens to you, you want to share it. Like your first impulse, my first, like who can I tell? Who can I share this with? We want to share it. And we see this with, with Paul and we see it with the Philippian church. They are glad to be with each other even while they're apart, right? They're in partnership with one another. And they know that God is glad to be with them. It's both horizontal and vertical. And that is joy. You cannot miss Paul's joy in this book, this letter. But you know what? Paul is writing this from prison. Like, think about that. The, arguably, the most joy-filled book of the entire Bible was written from a dark Roman prison. Paul is there once again for running his mouth about Jesus. He can't stop talking about him. And imagine that. There he is in jail with such incredible joy. Would we have that kind of joy in jail? How is it possible? Like, I want to know, right? So let's, let's take a look. And if you take just one thing with you today, I hope, it, I hope it's this. We see this in Paul's words. We see this in Paul's life. Take one thing with you is that there is, there is a joy that even suffering can't kill. I know for some of you, like, that's maybe is too hard to even imagine. But according to Paul, according to God's word here in this book, there is a joy that even suffering cannot kill. If you haven't already, turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to break this passage down. It's a long text. We're going to go actually even further than where I read. We're going to go all the way to the end of the chapter. So it's quite a, quite a bit here. But there are three characteristics in, in these, this section of the kind of joy that even suffering can't kill. So three, three things in particular. But before, before we do that, I just want to name something quickly. That, that some of us here right now or some of us joining us online are, are suffering right now. Like really suffering and that, that means that this sermon actually might be the last thing that you need. Just going to name that. What you, maybe, maybe what you need is like for someone just to sit silently with you and weep with you. And if that, if that describes you, if you're in that place right now, would you let us know and we will do that. We will come and we will sit silently and we will weep alongside you. And so if you're, if you're thinking like a joy that suffering can't kill, like too late, right? My joy has been dead for a long time. I want you to know if that describes you, Jesus, the man of sorrows, the man of incredible joy, he can work with that. He can resurrect your joy 
but it's going to take more than a sermon to do that, okay? And so even as we enter into this time, this, this message is really more for those of us, the rest of us, who are preparing to suffer. Does that make sense? You see the difference there? So if you're really in the throes of it right now, uh, like, let us sit with you in that. Uh, but for the rest of us, hopefully we can prepare to suffer together. Hopefully that makes sense. Okay, now the Apostle Paul. So let's, let's look at this, because first of all, we need to do like a little background story of who is he and who is this church, right? Because this is a letter written to real people, written by a real person. So there's, there's circumstances surrounding it, right? And so Paul, the apostle, like he is no stranger to suffering. In fact, originally, he was the one inflicting the suffering on Christians. Uh, he hated Christians, uh, so much so that he, he chased them, he imprisoned them, and he was part of the execution, the murder of some of them. Until he meets Jesus. This remarkable story on the Damascus Road where, where Jesus appears to Paul, and at that point, everything changes, and now, like, and for the rest of Paul's life, he cannot stop talking about Jesus. So much so that he just gets thrown into prison. Like, he cannot, he cannot shut his mouth when it comes to, to Jesus. And he, he travels around the entire known world at that time, planting churches everywhere that he goes. And this, this church in Philippi, the city, was the first church that Paul planted in Europe. It's in modern-day Greece. You can see it on the map up at the, the, kind of the top left there, um, Philippi. Uh, it was the first, first church that he planted in, in Europe in modern-day Greece. It was on his second missionary, missionary journey. So that the, kind of the lines there, that sort of charts out his, his second journey, going around the, the known world planting churches. And this was, this was about 49 A.D. that he planted this church, around 49 A.D. So he'd been, he'd been a Christian for about a decade and a half at that point. Little, little, little more. And you, you can read all about this in Acts chapter 16. So Acts is sort of the historical narrative uh, that covers a lot of these background, these background details. You read about it in Acts 16. Uh, and he was in prison there as well, actually. One of my favorite stories in Acts 16 is like Paul being in jail in Philippi. So he's no, he's no stranger here. Uh, and in this particular story, uh, he's there with his, his buddy Silas, and they are singing hymns and praising God in jail. It's just crazy. This is just Paul, right? Uh, and they're, they're there, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, there's this, this earthquake, and the, the jail door flies open, and the jailer panics because he assumes they've all escaped. He freaks out. And Paul's like, dude, we're here. It's okay. Relax. He's like, and while I've got your attention, can I tell you about Jesus? And this, this jailer becomes a Christian, and his entire family becomes a Christian, and these are like founding members of the church in Philippi. So they, they're not a stranger to what the conditions of, of what a prison would be like for Paul, right? They, they understand this intimately. They're a part of this, this church. So now Paul, he's in, he's in jail again. This time it's probably in Rome. We're not, we're not certain of that, but probably in Rome. And it's probably around 62 AD. So a good decade, you know, 13 years after he planted this church. And in this particular imprisonment, Paul's aware by this point like that he's quite possibly going to be executed. He doesn't know if it's going to be this time or a little bit later, uh, and it's actually going to be later, but obviously he doesn't know that at this point. Uh, and so this sort of cloud of, of potential execution hangs over Paul's head in this letter. And so the Philippian church, they hear about Paul's imprisonment in Rome. And instead of distancing themselves from him, like, oh, Paul, we're so ashamed of you, or Paul, we're so afraid to be associated with you. They actually step closer. 
that they send Epaphroditus, we're going to meet him later on in the letter, they send Epaphroditus to Paul in a gift to encourage him. Because they love, they love Paul. Paul's their pastor. He's their friend. He's the one who first told them about Jesus. And they want him to know that they're still with him. And this letter then of Philippians is Paul's response back to them. Does that make sense? So Pat, he's already been there. Right? He's, they've received this gift. And, and Paul's just, he's, he's just so joyful knowing that they are still with him, right? And so that they're still following Jesus. And so he wants to, to write a letter back to them. We heard the first part of it last week, right? Kind of Paul's introductory comments and, and some of the first instructions he has. In verse 12, then, let me read again how he picks up. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known that the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, thinking that they can afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Okay, so church, here's the first thing that grabs me. First thing that grabs me. If you want a joy that even suffering can't kill, it has to be rooted in something deeper than the life I think I want for myself. And the things that I, I think are going to make me happy, right, are going to give me uh, the fulfillment that I long for. It's got to be a joy deeper than the life I think I want. You have to know your purpose. Like, do you think this is the life Paul wanted for himself? Like, can you imagine him growing up or, or the life that his parents are, were super excited for him to embrace? Like, this is, this is not ideal, right? He's in jail, and yet you cannot miss his joy. He's like, you know what, guys? It's okay. Christ is being preached. And, and in fact, the, the, the Christians in Rome, they, they see me in jail, and instead of running in fear, they run to also share about Jesus because they say, well, if Paul can suffer for Jesus, so can I. And yeah, he says, like, some of them are, are doing it to stir up trouble. It's like, that's annoying, you know. But at the end of the day, People are talking about Jesus. And because of that, I rejoice. You see, Paul knew his purpose. And his purpose in life wasn't life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It wasn't a bigger house or a nicer vacation. It wasn't money or sex or success or the perfect family. His purpose was to follow Jesus, to proclaim Jesus, and to bring glory to Jesus. And checks out, you can do all of that from a Roman cell, right? And so it wasn't, it wasn't going to kill Paul's joy because Paul knew what his life was for, and his life wasn't for him. Reminds me of, of Viktor Frankl. 
Holocaust survivor. Uh, he writes about his, ex- his experience in the book Man's Search for Meaning. It's one of my favorite little books. It's a classic. Highly recommend it. Uh, but he talks about his experience in a concentration camp. I mean, just imagine, right? Like, talk about suffering, right? And for him, he, he writes about how the key to enduring is to know what your life is about, to know what it's for. And so he, so he writes, for example, he says, as we said before, any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in the camp had first to succeed in showing him some future goal. Nietzsche's words, he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how, could be the guiding motto. I mean, basically what he's saying, though, like if you understand your why, why you're on this earth, what you're for, why you exist, if you understand your why, you can endure almost any how. And sure, maybe, maybe you think, yeah, okay, that's, that's Viktor Frankl. Like, what about normal people, right? What about somebody like, like me, right? Well, I think about our, our, dear, our dear sister Annie. Reed mentioned her last week. Annie, who was, who was diagnosed on Good Friday, and by Tuesday, she was in the presence of Jesus. So fast. And pastors Ben and Reed, they got to spend a little time with her in between those, those final days. And they were both just struck by the amount of peace in her life, knowing man, it's, it's, it's going quick. Peace and even joy. But the reality is, if your why in life is pleasure, comfort, ease, the fulfillment of your desires, then yeah, suffering will absolutely massacre your joy. It won't stand a chance. But if your purpose is Jesus, no, it's not going to be easy, right? It doesn't take the suffering away. It doesn't make it simple. But if your purpose is Jesus, following him, becoming like him, pointing others to him, if that is what you're for, you might actually be able to hang on. Do you know your purpose? And is your purpose deep enough, strong enough to just maybe, maybe preserve your joy? Okay, go back, go back to Paul. Because yes, yes, he, he had a joy that is deeper than the life I think I want, right? The life we so often think we deserve. But he also needs a community around him to reinforce his joy. Joy is always relational. And the reality is, if you want joy, but don't have a strong faith community, it's, just, it's, it's not going to make it. Like, your joy is not going to survive, suffering. You, you see, Paul's, Paul's joy here that jumps out of these pages, I mean, yes, yes, like, this, this joy that, is suffering, that suffering can't kill, like, it's a joy that's, that's deeper than what I want, but it's also wider than just me. That's the second thing. You have to have a joy that's wider than just you. It can't, it can't be all about you, right? Look at, look at verse 18 again with Paul. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, 
this will turn out for my deliverance. And so he, he expects deliverance, right? Um, not, but not just through the help of God, which is, is so interesting to me, but through their prayers. Do you see that? Like for Paul in his life, it's not just Jesus and Paul. It is Jesus and Paul and the church. Skip, skip down now a few verses to, to verse 22. See how he continues to, to, to uh, allude or to, to draw, draw on this theme. He says if, in verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Let's skip down a little bit further. Uh, he goes on, he, com- he commands them to live a life worthy of Jesus, right? He says, stand firm, verse 27, stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Like, do you see in those sections like how important the faith community is to Paul? In fact, next week, Reed is going to build on this when we get to chapter 2, right? The first half of, of chapter 2, really all of chapter 2, is, is so deeply rooted in this idea of how important the community is to our faith, and to our joy. In the Philippian church, Paul tells us in this section is they're about to experience, they're starting to experience the same kind of suffering that Paul is. Paul's looking around like, it's coming for you too. It's it's starting to happen to the Philippian church. They're also being persecuted by the authorities around them because of their identification with Jesus. And so what does he tell them to do? Fight back? complain more, put an angry tirade on Facebook, right? Make sure you elect the right officials. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, stay together. Like, if anything, if anything right? And, and for this, like, church, we know this. It's going to get harder and harder. I'm, I'm convinced for us to follow Jesus. But our hope is Jesus in his community of people. He says, stay together, striving side by side. That the world may turn against you. It's going to. But don't turn against each other. Instead, turn toward each other. I mean, even, even just consider what Paul says here about his own life. He's like, if, if I need to depart and be with Jesus, that sounds great, right? Paul, Paul feels, feels that way. And so what does he choose, though? He chooses a life of more suffering for the fruitful labor of serving. It's like, yeah, I'd rather go be with Jesus, but you guys really need me right now. And I'd rather serve. I'd rather spend my life. I'd rather give my life serving. And yet so often, I mean, if I'm, if I'm completely honest, I, I just sort of assume if I'm going to be happy, I have to make my life about me. I have to get my rights fulfilled. I have to have my preferences taken care of. I've got I've to follow all of my desires and needs, Right? We've got to follow our own truth, listen to our own voices, even if it pushes the voices of others away from us, which is the opposite of joy. We assume I need to serve less, especially if it leads to suffering, right? I don't want to serve in a way that's not fun, it's not enjoyable. And yet for Paul, this is exactly what leads to more joy. I can't help but wonder if part of our misery as a culture 
while we're moving into, into more and more depression and anxiety is because we, we, we've made life about me. And we push everyone else away. And we think, well, if I'm gonna, if I'm gonna be happy, I've gotta, I've gotta follow my desires and I've gotta push everyone else away. That's the opposite of joy. Or I've, I've gotta do exactly what I want and have all of my needs met. I'm not gonna serve others, right? That, that's the opposite of joy. And I, and I know my own, my own tendencies here. I mean, I, I shared how I, I, I tend a little bit towards like melancholy, right? you know, mild depression or whatever you, whatever you want to call it. I, I know myself well enough that when I get in those moments where I'm feeling down or overwhelmed or just frustrated or discouraged or whatever, I want to isolate. That's my tendency, right? I want to push people away from me. I want to go watch TV, right? And yet, as I've learned more and more about the relational nature of joy, I've, I've, I've forced myself to fight that temptation, Say, no, that is not what I need. I mean, you, you know how it is. Like, you sit down and you veg for two hours. Like, does that really satisfy anybody? It's just easy. It's distracting. And yet, instead, when we choose to put ourselves in the way of community, which takes work and is exhausting, and sometimes I just don't want to do, that almost always fills me in the end. We have to choose to put ourselves in the way of community. We have to choose to be a people who serves one another. And church, if you, I mean, here's the thing, like if you feel like your joy is lacking, but you aren't regularly engaged in meaningful community with other Christians, I mean, what do you expect? And again, as our, our world continues to change, I'm not, an, I'm not an alarmist, people, I'm not, and I'm not afraid, okay, but I do think it's going to become increasingly difficult to follow Jesus. And while we cannot use that as an excuse to turn inward, we do need to turn toward each other. We better, we, we've got to love each other all the more. We've got to encourage each other more faithfully. We've got to serve each other more diligently. We are our people. We need one another. And if we, can, if we can help you get connected in a community group or Bible study or some other way to, to be involved in a meaningful we want to do that. Maybe attend a newcomer coffee at 11 if you're, if you're new here. Or, or like if you're not serving, like find yourself, a, to give yourself away. If you want, like if you're not doing, if you're not giving yourself away at work, at home, at school, like you're, you're not going to be happy. And if you want a place to, to serve here, I mean, I know this sounds self-serving, but I think the folks who serve here on a regular basis, who volunteer here, they're some of the most joyful people I know. And you could be one of them. Only a joy that is wider than just me is the kind of joy even suffering can't kill. It can't be just about you. All right, go back to Paul. Because so I want to I hit on one of the most famous things he ever said. It's, it's here in verse 21. I'm going to get there in a second, but a little bit more context about kind of where Paul is when he writes this. Because, again, you think about where he's at in his life. He's probably about 60, maybe not quite there yet, but he's, he's around 60. So he's been following Jesus for almost 30 years. Hey, three decades he spent traveling the world, telling people about Jesus and planting churches. He's only a couple years now remaining until execution. He's at, he's at the end of his life. And here he is in prison again. And throughout, throughout his life, he's been, he's been beaten, he's been chased, he's been, you know, despised and hated. I mean, continually persecuted as a follower of Jesus. It's been a hard 30 years for Paul. 
I can only imagine he's tired. Even, even as he writes these words, I, I, I picture him exhausted, not despairing, but exhausted. As he writes, verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To die is gain. I mean, would anyone in our culture ever say that? We do anything to run from death, to hide from death. We don't even like talking about death. We live in constant denial of death, and Paul says to die is gain. This isn't a death wish for Paul. I mean, he goes on and says, like, to depart, be with Christ, that's better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary in your account. Like, I'm going to keep, I'm ready to be with Jesus, and yet I'm willing to remain as long as I'm useful, is what he's saying. The reality is, if you want a joy, even suffering can't kill. Yes, it's got to be deeper than the life that I think that I want. It's got to be wider than just me. But also, it's got to be longer than my life expectancy. If you want a joy that suffering can't kill, you have to have a joy that's longer than your life expectancy. If you live as if this life is it. Let's be honest, most of us do most of the time. Like, even as Christians, right, we, we live as if we have 80 years to carve out as much joy and happiness. I've got to fulfill every desire I've ever had right now because there's a hard stop coming. And if you live as if this is all there is, suffering will absolutely crush you. Like if you, if you believe that your pain will never be healed, your desires will never be fulfilled, your losses will never be restored, if you believe this is your one chance to be happy, suffering will kill you. And yet Paul, who suffered more than most of us, right? He's like, hey, worst case scenario, I get to go be with Jesus. The God who made me, who gave his life for me, who wants to be with me, and I get to be with him forever, in paradise, healed and made whole. That's his worst case. Listen, I don't, I don't want to make light of anyone's heartache or pain. Like I said at the start, I know some of you are really suffering. And this might be a very, very difficult message to hear as a result. I don't want to make light of any of that. But if you belong to Jesus, none of that wins. That's not the end of your story. You, you don't just have 80 years. You have forever. And so whatever, whatever you've lost, whatever you've given up, whatever's been taken from you, it will be restored and it will be restored forever. And so like Paul, we can say, for to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Uh, Ken Burns, he's the the great documentary uh, maker. Some of you know that name, many of you don't. It's okay, I feel like he's a personal friend of mine. We love love his PBS documentaries as a family. We're we're those kinds of people, uh, in case you had any doubt. But we love love Ken Burns, and his his latest documentary, uh, it's on PBS right now, is on Ernest Hemingway, the great great writer, who um, I think probably many of us are aware, like because of his own personal intense suffering, ended up taking his own life, right? But he, he wrote in a letter, listen to what he, what he once, once wrote. He said, all stories, this is Hemingway, all stories, if continued far enough, end in death. And he is no true storyteller who would keep that from you. Every story ends in death, and anybody who tells you otherwise is a liar, is what he's saying. And he's, he's right. 
but he's also wrong. And so I think, I think Paul, in response to this, would say, yes, yes, that is true. Death is coming for each of us. But it is not the end of the story. For Jesus, the truest storyteller of all, came out of the grave alive. Hallelujah. And Jesus, Jesus says to his people in John, let me read John 16. He says to us, to his disciples, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Then he gives an example. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Church, there is a joy that even suffering can't kill. And it is available to each one of us through Jesus. The one who, I mean, just even love what he says, I will see you again. Joy is always relational. He came to this earth to give his life for you. He is always glad to be with you, and he wants to be with you forever. So that no matter what we face, no matter how hard it is, no matter how deep the pain, there can still be joy. Let's pray. Father, this is a work that only you can do. So God, I ask that you would do it in us. God, for those of us here or joining us online who are in the midst of real suffering right now, God, would you be comforting presence to them. Even if they're not in a place where they can hear these words, I pray that your presence would be near to them, that even in this moment you would be sitting with them, weeping alongside them. And God, for the rest of us who are preparing to suffer, Lord, I pray that you would give us a vision of a life that's better than what I think I want that you would give us a community of people around us to sustain us and to give us this joy together, and that you would remind us constantly that this life is not the end, but that you have joy forevermore in store for us. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.